All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9 says this. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. That's our series title. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. I think our text today requires just a little bit of setup. It's, it's not confusing, it's not controversial, nothing like that. But I think it, it goes to the heart of how we engage with scripture, how we read the Bible, kind of what we read into it and what we get out of it. And I think it's going to be helpful to do just a little bit of, uh, a little bit of background, I suppose, for us. And I want to give you a way that I've found helpful for me to think about discipleship. This may not work for you, but it works for me to kind of think about my relationship or my like following after God in these terms. Uh, a number of years ago, I was in Colorado, and uh, you know, when you're in Colorado, you got to do Colorado-like things. And so we went on this little hiking trail up to a place called Devil's Tower. And uh, it's not the Devil's Tower you're thinking of, third encounter, or closest encounters of the third kind. It's it's in Colorado, and it's on the very top of it is this like fire watch tower, and you can you see it up there. And it's this cool hike, and you can kind of see the. Um, the stairs that lead up there, but everything is really broad and, you know, everything is really like well, you know, not lit because it was during the day, but well like laid out and planned and there's the, the, uh, the signs that tell you exactly where to go. There's no chance of getting lost. You know, you follow this trail, it's a couple miles, no chance of, you know, going off trail or anything like that and you climb up to the top and you look around and it's very cool. You know, you're at high altitude, so it's hard to breathe if you're not used to being there. Um, and on the way back, I realized that from the top there, you could kind of see where we had parked a couple miles away. And I thought, you know what would be fun to do is to go off trail and make my way. There was like, look like a direct route back to the parking lot. And I'll just go off trail, make my way back to the parking lot. That should be fun. I got a picture from the top here. This is kind of what, this is not my picture, rather. This is a picture somebody took from the top. And the parking lot was kind of off to the side over there on the left-hand side of the screen. You could kind of see the, where it was. You could see kind of these hills that were sort of in front of it. And I thought, I'll just go off trail. I'll just make my way. How hard could it be? It'd be fun. Fun little adventure. Something enjoyable to do. Well, you know how when you read about people getting lost? And you're like, how did they get lost? Well, this is how they do it. This is exactly how they do it. So I'm wandering down through this uh, off trail. I decide this is going to be fun. Now from up here, everything looks very simple. Everything looks very clear. Everything looks very laid out. You just head in the direction of that mountain and it should be no problem. But once you get down into the trees, these boulders, they're not just like boulders. They're like huge semi-truck sized boulders and you got to go around them and you got to cross creeks and rivers. It's no wonder there's a trail that they made for you to get to the top because you're not supposed to do this sort of thing. And I remember what, to, what should have taken me about uh, 20 minutes ended up taking about two hours because I thought I would be cool and go off trail. Well, I think there's a really interesting or valuable correlation for me for what discipleship is, what discipleship truly is. Because sometimes what we want is we want turn by turn directions. We want a nice wide path that the signage is all very clear and we're going to make our way to our destination very easily. But discipleship isn't like that. Discipleship, as often as not, is directional, where you see the destination you want to reach, but you've got to do a little work, a little navigating to get there. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. One of the most famous commands in the Bible is in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, where Jesus 
gets his guys around him, and he says, go make disciples. Now, one person reads that, and they're thinking, you know what? I've got a responsibility to my children. I've got to raise them up in the Lord. I've got to make disciples of my children. That's true. You need to go make disciples of your children. Absolutely. Somebody else reads that verse and they think, man, I'm thinking about my, my coworker. There's this person at work that I just, I know that they would be receptive to the gospel. I know that they would make an awesome disciple. I need to go make disciples of that person. Another person reads this text and they think, you know what I need to do? I need to pack up my family and we need to move to Peru or we need to move to Belgium or we need to move to Mexico and we need to go make disciples of all nations. Now, this is a, an, an objective command from God, but the way we navigate to the, 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 the point in the distance is going to be different for different people. All those are, are correct applications of an objective command. And there's so many examples we could give like that. It's straightforward. It's clear. But it's navigated in different ways. And so this is what I want us to think about a little bit. Is that discipleship isn't always, and I should qualify, it isn't always turn-by-turn direction. But it requires wise or thoughtful and honest navigation. It requires us taking in what God is telling us and then us thinking through how this actually looks in our lives. Not how this looks in other people's lives. That's a little easier to do, but how this looks in our lives. What does it mean to live out these objective truths in our own lives? So for the Thessalonians, we've been reading this story about the Thessalonian church and it's just an incredible story because Paul rolls into town and he starts planting. He starts telling people about the gospel. He starts getting them, all right, we're going to get together. I'm going to teach you guys. And then about three weeks later, he gets kicked out of town. Three weeks? That's not enough time to do anything. But yet this church is somehow making it. They're thriving. They're doing great. Even though they've not had all this direction. Because they've got this idea of where they're supposed to be headed. And they're navigating around the rocks and through the valleys and around the trees and over the creeks. And so just like us, they're working every part of their lives into alignment with what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Every single part of their lives needs to come into alignment with what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And they're trying to think through this. What does this look like in my life, in my situation, in this context in which I live? I mean, you can just imagine like Paul walks into your city and you wake up on a Monday and you are worshiping idols at the temple. That's your plan. And you meet this Paul and he's like, idols are no good. You can't worship idols. I got to tell you about this Jesus. And then according to the text earlier in the book of Thessalonians, it says that they threw away or they turned away from their idols to, to, to get rid of their idols. I don't have it on screen there. They got rid of their idols. Like their lives had been completely turned upside down. The path that they had laid out before them, the red carpet that culture had said, here you go. This is what life should look like was completely different. And they had to re- navigate life in light of this new reality. They had to figure everything out. Their Tuesday morning looked different than their Monday morning because their priorities were different. Their lives were different. Their values were different. The direction they were headed was different than the culture around them and then what it had been for them the day before. So we are navigating off Trail, or to borrow Jesus' metaphor, there is a way that is wide and broad and many find it. But there is also a way that is narrow and you really have to look for it because not very many people find it. And that's what it means to be a disciple. So with that in mind, I want to navigate uh, through this text that we're looking at this morning. And, uh, and just talk a little bit about what these things look like in our lives and how we engage with the scripture in light of that idea. First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 11. He goes, make it your ambition 
to lead a quiet life. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. That sounds good, doesn't it? Nice, quiet life. Aren't you guys looking forward to a nice, quiet Sunday afternoon? How many of you are looking forward to getting a little something to eat, a little Sunday afternoon nap? That's a nice, quiet life. Turn on Do Not Disturb on your phone. Don't, you know, like close the blinds. It's going to be a nice cloudy day outside, so it'll be nice and dark. You're looking for, for a good three, four-hour power nap today, this afternoon. How many of you, a nice, quiet life. Kids, don't bother mom. Don't bother dad. They are out of commission for the afternoon. Nice, quiet life. That's a totally appealing sentiment. I love that. Um, I remember hearing the late George H.W. Bush talk about the difference between being the leader of the free world and then not being president the next day once, you know, you were, the new guy was inaugurated and you were out of office. And he, he was, in a speech, he says, one day you have the nuclear launch codes and the next day you're waiting in the car for your wife while she's grocery shopping. Like, just such, it's such a contrast. One day your life is just filled with these momentous decisions. And the next day you're just like, yeah, just hanging out. Just quiet life. Now the quiet life, that sounds appealing, doesn't it? I mean, for me, for, it sounds like oh, a nice, like a Sunday afternoon on the deck, glass of lemonade. It sounds nice. And so I, this is a perfect example of what it means to read your own preconceptions into the text, by the way. Because you guys want to know what it means in, what the word quiet means in the original Greek? Anybody have any guesses what the word quiet means in the original Greek? This is going to blow your minds. It means quiet. I know, right? Usually when we say that, we're like, it means something wild and crazy. It means quiet. Like volume, quiet. You know what he's saying here when he says you need to live a quiet life? He's saying stop talking so much. That's what he's saying. I'm thinking like hammock lemonade in the back. He's saying literally, you should not talk so much. You need to leave a, lead a quiet life. And this, like, this, this idea is all over scripture. We had VBS last week. Let me tell you, the human default in kids sixth grade and down is not quiet. It is not quiet. I had to teach fifth and sixth graders. It's not quiet. The amount of times you have to go to the room and like, you know, do, hey, everybody, you got to calm down. And I'm terrible at this. I'm terrible at this. Or you're just saying, shh, you know, for 30 minutes, you sound like an air balloon leaking air for the whole time because they're not quiet. That is not the human default. It's not the human default, but it's all over scripture. Um, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19 says, sin is not ended by multiplying words. Isn't that good? Sin is not ended by multiplying words. In other words, when you multiply words, what happens? You get more sin the longer you talk. It's just better to be quiet. Now, here's, that's why it's such a good example of me reading my preconceptions into the text. Because I approach the text, and I'm literally thinking a nice, calm, quiet Sunday afternoon. I love that. That's my new favorite life verse. And then I actually read the text for what it says. And he's like, you got to stop talking so much. It's perfect for somebody like me whose job is public speaking, right? you got to stop talking so much. I want you to uh, see this quote from a, a gentleman by the name of Philo of Alexandria. He was a, a Hebrew or a Jewish uh, philosopher, and he wrote about this idea of quiet, and I thought, man, this really describes some people, and some of you are going to be like, yeah, that describes you, Patrick. He lets loose his tongue for unmeasured, endless, indiscriminate talk, bringing chaos and confusion into everything. He mingles truth with falsehood, the private with the public, the sacred with the profane, not having learned to remain quiet. I think we should probably add, not engaging in the comment section on Facebook, not sending that email, 
Not adding to the noise. Literally, Paul is saying you need to lead a quiet life. Turn the volume down. You need to stop talking so much. Oh, man, that's great. You know what? I don't know who needs to hear this today, but the world does not need our opinion. It really doesn't. We, it doesn't need it. Now, this is interesting because this requires thoughtful, wise, honest navigation. Because are there moments in our lives where we do need to speak up and tell the truth? And we need to stand up and we need to let people know what's right and what's wrong? Absolutely. So is this like a clear overriding principle for everything? Like there's something bad happening and you're like, well, I'm just, you know, the Bible says be quiet. I'm a leader. No, it requires thoughtful navigation. It's not turn by turn directions. It's us being wise and smart about how we navigate a given situation. James 1.19 says, quick to listen and slow to speak. Turn the volume down. That's good advice. It's good advice, but it requires thoughtful navigation. He goes on to say, in the next part of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he goes on to say, and here's another thing you need to do. You need to mind your own business. When Liam was reading this, I was like, buddy, what's your favorite part? He's like, that's my favorite part. Mind your own business. As he looked at his sister in the back seat of the car as we were driving. Mind your own business. Any of you guys remember uh, when you were a kid, you, you, said, you ever say, mind your own beeswax? I don't know why. I don't know where that comes from. I have no idea. But I remember saying that, and that meant mind your own business. Because usually it was a brother or a sister getting you in trouble for something, you know, like, come on, just leave me alone. Mind your own beeswax. This doesn't matter to you. This does not concern you. This is a Patrick situation. It is not a sibling situation. Just mind your own business. Now, I, uh, I would describe myself, if I were being honest, I would describe myself as a curious person. Curious. My wife would describe me as a nosy person. At least that's what she wrote in her diary. But that's the difference between my wife and I. Shit, just kidding. It is, uh, <laughs> it is much more entertaining to think about other people's business, you know? It's, it's a nice distraction from our own lives. It's much more entertaining. It's much more uh, enjoyable to be like, oh, look at all the problems they have. And it's much more enjoyable to take our opinions and then apply them to somebody else's life than it is to let somebody else do that to our lives. It's just so much more fun. It's just, it's a fun, like, it's a fun hobby to mind somebody else's business. Well, that's not how I would raise my kids. That's not how I would spend my money. That's not how I would use my time. And it's sometimes helpful because it keeps us from having to think about or worry about our own problems, minding their business. But here's the deal. It, you should mind your own business, right? But this requires thoughtful navigation. Because there are times where you need to mind other people's business. Doesn't the scriptures tell us that we're supposed to confess our sins one to another? Next time somebody says, hey Patrick, you know, can I confess something to you? Absolutely not. I'm supposed to mind my own business. I do not want to get involved. I do not want to. No. It requires thoughtful navigation to figure out when is it inappropriate? When does it matter? When do I engage? And when do I withhold? We're supposed to admonish one another. We're supposed to encourage one another. Boy, it, it requires us being just considerate and thoughtful and attention. As we're navigating off trail, we got to pop up every once in a while and see, are we still headed toward Christ or not? And then we get back in the weeds and we start navigating once again, minding our own business. He goes on to say, and work with your hands. You should mind your own business and you should work with your hands, just as we told you. 
As I was doing some research this week, there's some people who literally think this means that you have to work with your hands. You have to have a manual uh, job. You can't have some sort of, you know, desk job. You have to work with your hands, and clearly, because that's what the Bible says. Um, but based on some context that you read in other places in this, in this passage, um, remember, people had only had a few weeks with Paul. And Paul had started telling them, hey, just so you know, at some point, Jesus is going to return and everything, you know, that'll be, the, uh, that'll be a wrap on everything. And evidently, Paul didn't have a chance to get to the, the rest of the story with that. So people heard that Jesus is going to return and they thought, you know what, Jesus might return before the first of the month. So if I'm not going to get paid, if I'm not going to have to make my next rent paycheck, what does it matter? I'm just, I'm going to quit work. I'm just going to quit right now. Because Jesus is coming back. All right. Well, I, I, good news, bad news. Good news is they were taking this truth seriously. That's the good news. The bad news is that what happened at the first of the month is that, oh boy, I don't have any money now. I don't have a place to stay. I got evicted. Hey, by the way, since we're brothers and sisters in Christ now, do you mind if I crash at your place? Well, I, I suppose, yeah, me and my 12 kids are all, we're going to have to live with you now because we're just waiting for Jesus to come back. Well, uh, hey, you know what you need to do, Paul says? You need to work with your hands. You need to get a job. You need to stop mooching off of other people. And he talks about that much more directly in the, in the second book. I mean, it's such a great idea. I'm not going to have a mortgage payment in eternity, so I'm just going to quit. What, this dead-end, low-paying job? I'm just quitting. Well, I guess they're trying to navigate, but they took a little bit of a wrong turn. And then he goes on in verse 12 and he says, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. That your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. And I love this because Paul had literally been kicked out of town by these people and he's concerned about their opinion of Christians. He'd been kicked out of town by other people in, 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 Thess in Thessalonica and he was concerned about their opinion of him. That your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. And I think this is so interesting when you think about like our lives and how we navigate these ideas. Because on one hand, we're reminded throughout scripture, the world will hate you. The world will hate you. Can't, you're going to suffer persecution. You stand up for your beliefs and people are going to be upset at you and call you out and be mad at you. And so sometimes I think Christians over-index a little bit on that. They're like, well, nobody's going to like me anyway, so I'm just going to like double down and I'm going to post stuff on Facebook that really makes them not like me. And when people react normally, as they would in a situation like that, they're like, see, the world's persecuting me. But here's what Paul says in this passage. He's like, you've got to make sure that your life, your daily life, wins the respect of outsiders, that it matters what people think, what they think about you, how they care about you. So the message is the world will hate you and you want your daily life to win their respect. That requires thoughtful, wise navigation through this process. And then he goes on to wrap up in this section so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So you're not be dependent on anybody. It wasn't a good look if Christianity turned people into a bunch of just guys who quit their jobs and weren't making a living and were just living off of other people. It wasn't a good look. It wasn't good for the reputation. And so Paul comes back and says, hey, you guys are awesome. You guys are great. We've got a few tweaks that we need to make. We've got a few things, a few things that we need to re-navigate and that we need to reassess in light of everything that's going on. So a couple notes as we wrap up this morning. A couple of things that I want us to consider. Number one is we just need to remind ourselves of this truth every once in, once in a while. Discipleship needs to work itself into every corner of our lives. 
There's just no part of who we are or what we do. There's no part of our job. There's no exception clause for a family member or an exception clause for what a boss is asking us. There's just no way, uh, um, part of our life that we get to have exempt from this requirement of following Jesus. And sometimes we want to do that. Sometimes we want to, we're in a situation where we're like, well, I'm not sure this is what God would want me to do. I'm not sure this is really what Jesus would want me to do, but I don't really have a choice because this is what my boss is asking me to do. I don't see a different way. Discipleship has to work its way into every corner of your life. Every corner of your life. There's no part that's off limits. And every corner of your life needs to be navigated in light of this idea that we're following Christ. Second, secondly, this is important. Discipleship isn't always turn-by-turn turn direction. It requires us to be thinking through, what does this mean in, in my life, in my kid's life? In my, what does this mean for my coworkers? What does this mean for my family? What does this mean for my specific situation? What does this mean for, for, the, for the history and the baggage and the situation in which I've been raised? What does this mean for me? What does it mean to love people? What does it mean to pursue justice in the situation uh, in which I find myself? And finally, and this is so important, I think this is something that we struggle with as Christians. Needing to change direction isn't bad. It's part of the process. In, in, in the, uh, the metaphor of navigating off trail in Colorado, needing to change direction is how you pursue Christ. It doesn't mean you're wrong. It doesn't mean you're bad. It means that you're trying to more closely, you're trying to more committedly follow after Christ. And it's okay. But we're so resistant to this desire uh, or this need to say, you know what? I was headed in the wrong direction. One of the most frustrating things I think about uh, driving is when you get off the highway, get gas, you know, use the restroom or whatever, and you get back on the highway and you're not really thinking and you get back on the highway going in the wrong direction. Some of you would never do that, but some of us who navigate off trail in Colorado might do something like that. Um, it's so frustrating because you're just, you're like, you're, you know, you're hitting the gas and you're, you know, you got your crew set to an, an acceptable amount over the speed limit so you don't get pulled over, but you get there in good time. And you're just listening to a podcast or listening to the radio or having a conversation. And then it dawns on you that things don't look familiar. Or you look at a sign and you're like, that doesn't look like I thought we were headed south. That says Canada is only a few miles away. I don't know what, what's going on here. And you realize that you've been driving the wrong way for a while. Well, it doesn't do you or anybody in the car any good to say, you know what, doesn't matter. I put this much time and effort into it. I'm going to keep going this way. It doesn't help. What helps is to like, whoops, I want to go the right direction. And so we get off the highway and we turn ourselves around and we head back the way we need to be going. That's okay. That's part of the process. That's part of what it means to follow Christ. In fact, I would submit that if we are never changing direction, does that mean we have it 100% right? It just means that we're too stubborn to do what we know we need to do and to repent of the things of which we need to repent. So, real discipleship, changing direction isn't bad. Changing direction isn't bad. It's going to, we're going to mess up and that's okay. The real problem is when we're unwilling to course correct. Next week, uh, joint, you got to come back next week because Thessalonians gets into some fascinating territory. Uh, really, the bulk of the rest of this book talks about the afterlife and what's next. And I have, in my limited experience as being a human on this earth, people are either, either super duper fascinated by that or they don't want to talk about it at all. And Paul jumps in the deep end talking about what happens and what comes next. And so I think you'll want to join us because what happens next should affect what happens right now. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. 
Father in heaven, Lord, we are we're grateful. Uh, we're grateful for the direction that we get in our lives through Christ. Uh, God, I realize that it's not always easy to do what is right. Um, and sometimes we have genuine, legitimate questions about the direction we should be headed. But God, I pray that you would give us that spirit of introspection and of honesty. You'd give us your spirit of wisdom and you would help us uh, navigate those tough decisions that we have. Decisions that we have to make for ourselves and our families and our loved ones. God, I pray that you'd give us the wisdom that we need to navigate through life. Lord, I pray for our graduating seniors that are heading off to college that are going to be confronted with new uh, choices that they've not had to make and they're going to have to bear the responsibilities for their own spirituality. They won't have someone directing them every step of the way and so I pray for them. But Lord, I pray that same thing for all of us, that we'd be, we'd be thoughtful and concerned and, and care deeply about what you want from us. Lord, I pray that you would help us, that you would guide us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.